0: All right, gentlemen, looks like we hit 6.30, so we can go ahead and get started. Greetings to all of you guys online, and thanks for joining us. Uh, For those of you who are joining us for the first time or haven't joined us for a while, we have a particularly spicy section of 1 Corinthians that we're going through, so we'll enjoy that thoroughly here in a moment. Let's open with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and for his mercies which are new every morning, that he daily and richly forgives us our sins and forgives the sins of all believers. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might rightly understand your word as it is penned for us by St. Paul, and then apply that word to our church, to our homes, to our lives together. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of uh, getting us back into the context, 1 Corinthians 4 is the start of the spiciness. You see, him, for example, at verse 8, beginning this section of real bitter sarcasm. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you have become kings, etc., etc. And that that's a good part of the, the early epistle to have in mind when trying to remember what Paul is addressing in the congregation in Corinth. Because overall, it is this idea that they have of themselves that they have reached the spiritual top. They're the epitome of what it means to be Christian. No one can tell them anything. And Paul addresses this arrogance, this boasting, this being puffed up recurrently in this epistle. So we've seen how he addresses this problem of sectarianism, their boast that, well, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, this kind of arrogant uh, fractioning of the church. And then that arrogance has also pervaded into
1: another problem.
0: I'm hearing a motorcycle on somebody's microphone there at home. So if you don't mind uh, hitting pause for me, feel free to unpause and um, get my attention. If you got a question or comment, happy to entertain that. Um, But yeah, five uh, in chapter five, we see that the arrogance of the Corinthians has manifested that they're allowing this uh, sexually immoral man who's engaged in this really kind of profound public sin to just remain undisciplined within the congregation. So that's what we're going to see the transition to. Now, by way of getting a running start into that section, let's just pick up at chapter 414. So this is right after his uh, especially sarcastic section. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. So just as Paul imitates Christ, Christ imitates the father like father like son, down the chain it goes, Paul would have the Corinthians imitate him. And he reminds them of the spirit in which he is chastising them with the sarcasm and with the rhetoric. It's not as though he were their enemy, but he is a father who's seeking to discipline them and call them back to their senses. So it's done in love, even if it is a kind of firm love, harsh love. Okay, 17, that is why I sent you Timothy my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, it may well be that Timothy bore this letter in his hand as he went, to remind you of my ways in Christ. Again, there's Paul saying, look, I follow Christ, you follow me or be imitators of me, even as I imitate Christ. So to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are, and again, the English Standard Version has arrogant, it would be better to have puffed up just for the sake of continuity. Um, Even continuity internally within this own ESV translation, it would be better because elsewhere they use puffed up, here they use arrogant. I'm highlighting that because it's very important as we transition into Chapter 5 to see the connecting spiritual theme. Some are arrogant or puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant or puffed up people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. So not mere words, but in power that backs up those words. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love in a spirit of gentleness. Again, you see that paternal heart, shall I come to you with a rod that is in chastisement or a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so we see then that word puffed up or arrogant, echoed again, puffed up or arrogant, and that's what we're going to see then in chapter 5, verse 2. So chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that is not now tolerated is put in there it's fine but it would just read more woodenly a kind that is not even among pagans so not even is it, it's not it's not among pagans and it's certainly not tolerated amongst them either they have laws against this kind of thing present on the books at the time that paul is writing And then he goes on to describe what the nature of this specific sexual immorality is that he has in mind. For a man has his father's wife. I'll let the study note do the dirty work for me. If you go down to one, if you have a Lutheran study Bible, it reads um, perhaps from Chloe's people, that thus it was reported to Paul. The sudden change in tone and topic suggests the report has just been received that may well be the case who knows but now as to the nature of what's going on this man who has his father's wife probably not incest and that in the language even bears that out because she is not referred to as his mother but relations with a stepmother now that's forbidden in Levitical, leviticus eighteen eight. but do you really need a chapter and verse of the Bible to let you know that that's wrong. (laughs) Greek and Roman culture also rejected the practice, which is pretty wild because the Greeks and the Romans let a lot go down. (laughs) Greek and Roman culture also rejected the practice specifically in the Institutes of Gaius. So that's actually where it's on on the law books, as it were. Okay. But now look at the problem in verse two. And you are puffed up, arrogant. So that's the continuity. And really, at the deepest level, you're dealing with a congregation that is arrogant when it absolutely should not be. So Paul's kind of cutting them down. They're arrogant, and Paul's saying, look, you are baby Christians. I had to just give you milk. I couldn't even give you solid food. Your boasting is not good. You're boasting in men. If you want to boast, boast only in God. Don't boast in men. Don't boast in yourselves. And look at this... uh, Look at this clear, unchristian practice, unbiblical practice that's going on in your midst. And you're arrogant. So Paul, again, just, as I said, spicy. I mean, he's just going right after him. And he's not going to stop. St. Paul's kind of like a a bulldog with a bone, you know. Not going to let that thing go. So, And you are arrogant, exclamation point. I mean, you can just hear like the outrage here the father's indignation toward his sons. Ought you not rather to mourn? Um, Let him who, and that's fine. Let the one who has done this be removed from among you. So a couple of things to point out here that, that are interesting. Ought you not rather to mourn? So, to mourn for the fact that this uh, great public sin has taken place in their midst, it brings to mind something that's largely been lost in the church, and probably we ought to look for opportunities. Certainly, I in my office ought to look for opportunities to bring it back, and that is opportunities for corporate mourning, for a time to gather together as the body of Christ and mourn when a grievous sin has occurred in our midst. Uh, especially if we view that one as a as a brother in Christ, as a member in Christ, and to reflect on that, even as we reflect on our own sins and our own shortcomings. So the idea here we're not a, we're not all a bunch of individuals. It's like, hey, my hands are clean. You know, your brother is engaged in sin. Does that not upset you? Uh, you, you know, as I, I, it's like it's like the left hand. Well, the right hand did that. So I'm not going to worry too much about it. The left hand's connected to the right. We're all one body here, okay? So there are examples of this corporate mourning. Uh, Coincidentally, it's all chapter nines. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9 are all examples where the prophets call for a time of corporate mourning. And built in, you know, baked into the historic church calendar is the season of Lent which is a perfect opportunity to have that regular sense of corporate mourning over our sins. Um, ours individually, yes. Ours corporately as a body of Christ in this place. So I think that can be leveraged and put to great use as well. All right, well, maybe enough on that. Then the latter half of verse 2, let him who has or let the one who has done this be removed among you and or from among you, and this is clearly what we will call excommunication then. So that's what Paul's saying. We'll see more details. But this is also in keeping with Matthew 18. Now, Matthew 18, it's it's worth comparing because Matthew 18 goes through this process. Like if your brother sins against you, and of course, in Matthew 18, already inferred is that you're letting like, a, you're overlooking a lot of sins, Because if every time your brother sins against you, you're going to go through Matthew 18, you're going to need a spreadsheet to keep track of it. You're going to need to quit your job because it's just going to be following Matthew 18 with all the people who have sinned. So you need to overlook what you can overlook. But where a brother has sinned against you and there's a breach of relationship, it's significant. Then These are the words of our Lord. Then go to your brother alone in order that you may win him. So the idea is to communicate What has happened in such a way that you win your brother back, become reconciled to him once more. Obviously, then, in terms of what's happening in your brother's heart, it would be repentance. It would be that he acknowledges his sin and says, I'm sorry. And if there's reparation to be made, he makes reparation. Now, if he won't listen to you, then take uh, one or two others with you. So there's two or three. Now you've got the witnesses. And if he won't listen even to them, then you take it to the church. And then the congregation goes, and um, there's nothing in our Lord's words that indicate that this has to be like, okay, well, I did it once, so that's enough. And then, okay, there was this once, and that's enough. And the church said something once to him, and that's enough. Uh, It can go down like that, but Matthew 18 itself can indicate a kind of process, the goal being to win your brother. Now, if if all these measures fail, though, it's Jesus himself who says, let such a one be counted as a tax collector. That is outside of the church. So our Lord teaches excommunication. Paul knows that. Paul here teaching excommunication. In this case, the key being penitence. You know what? What if Paul had come uh, come and addressed this man directly, and he said, "You're you're absolutely right. I've fallen into this great evil. I am sorry for it. I repent." I'm, I'm cutting this off, and I'm never doing this again, and here are the steps I'm going to take to ensure that this never happens again. Is there, ex, is there need for excommunication? Is there a need to remove him? No. He's a repentant sinner. He needs to bear fruits worthy of that repentance, but he's repentant. So the key here is repentance. That's like kind of the granular uh, point So Paul then says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. Verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already, uh, pronounced judgment is fine, but I have just already judged the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, so from this stems the idea that excommunication at this level, the formal and complete level where you're, where you're um, removing one from among you, it's to be done as a congregation. So this is reflected in our churches, the churches of and many churches, but the churches of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, it's written in that this kind of formal communication, ha- excommunication has to be done by the congregation. And needs to be done by the congregation at a divine service that's the content so it, the context it's an official right of the church and it's a recognition of the body of christ why don't we see excommunications like this today why do most churches not see excommunications like this? It, it's because we're all there is some cowardice involved uh even where there's willingness to be faithful on the part of the congregation, what's the real practical reason why there are no excommunicated? You're still thinking too high-minded, Chris. You're like a saint. It's because the second it's like the second anyone catches wind that there might be church discipline, they're out. They're on to the next church, right? So they they in effect excommunicate themselves. And they're just on down the road. Now, it is worth pointing out that there are valid excommunications and invalid excommunic- excommunications. I mean, if you belong to a kind of denomination that doesn't, you know, believe in the bodily presence of Christ or in the sacrament or doesn't believe in um, the baptism of children or something like this, and or doesn't believe that the death of Christ is the death for this, that atones for the sins of the whole world or something like this, and you start preaching these things, you might get excommunicated. Uh, Even Martin Luther got excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church for pretty much doing nothing more than upholding St. Paul's position on justification by faith. So there are valid excommunications and invalid excommunications, and it's worth keeping that in mind. Here is clearly an example of a valid excommunication. Now, that severs someone from the body of Christ, if they come to their senses, they repent, they're brought back in. And if we were to continue on to 2 Corinthians, we would see that that's exactly what seems to happen with this man. He seems to be excommunicated by the church, come to his senses. The Corinthians write to Paul, now what? And Paul says, bring him back in. Okay, so that's the function of excommunication. Now, excommunication is also, properly speaking, it is a formal recognition that the man has already sever- severed himself from Christ. So it's kind of like there's analogies to divorce and or, or to adultery and divorce. Where, uh, where adultery takes place and then a divorce takes place, the divorce is actually a recognition of what occurred in the adultery. So let's say a husband and wife, the two are one flesh, and either one, just to be concrete, let's say the wife uh, has an affair. She's now made herself one flesh with someone else. So in that case, a divorce is a recognition, just a recognition of, hey, this happened. If there's not to be a divorce, there has to be a reconciliation and a bringing back into the marital union um, that's going to that's going to be a bit of a process, as you can imagine. It's not unthinkable, um, and in fact, as Christians, um, if we can bear that, we probably should bear that as a general rule, but not in every case. Christ leaves us free as Christians in that case to recognize that there's been a breach of the one flesh union. Um, that's all divorce is is saying. Yep, that's what it is, and nope, we're not going to be reconciled on this point. And you're within. You're, I mean, even Christ uh, says you're within. Balances Christian to do that, if that's the case. Okay. Yes, sir.
1: Remind me, that Hebrews 6 talks about the separation of the soul and the fact that there's no chance of getting we're talking about this, what is different about Hebrews 6?
0: Yeah, Hebrews 6 is generally talking about a kind of apostasy. So a kind of knowing-witting apostasy. I know who Christ is and I renounce him outright. And the argument of the argument of Hebrews 6 isn't so much, I, I think it's rhetorical, given the context. The context is that the author of Hebrews is writing to Christians who are starting to be persecuted. And all the handwriting on the wall is that they're going to be persecuted terribly. And there's a great temptation to go back to the temple. Hey, we're worshiping Yahweh here. We were worshiping Yahweh there. If we just go back to the temple, we're going to be spared. He's saying, if you wittingly, knowingly turn your back on Christ, there's no coming back. And there's no coming back because what am I going to do? Come and preach Christ to you? You've just rejected him. And that's this analogy he uses of the rain that falls. It just brings up thorns and thistles. So that's if I go and preach the gospel to you, it's the very thing you're rejecting. You're just going to reject it again. I think that's the proper way to read it because there are examples of apostasy where people have come back. So I don't think that there's some sort of dogmatic axiom there going on in Hebrews 6. I think it's a pastoral plea to recognize what you are doing that in in trying to save yourself from bodily affliction you're destroying your soul. Don't do that don't make that trade and that fits the whole rhetoric of Hebrews doesn't it the whole rhetoric of Hebrews is trying to show how Christ is the superior high priest how Christ is the superior sacrifice, how Christ is the superior temple etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah you bet great question. Okay, any, anyone else have any thoughts? We'll just keep moving along. We're not done with the topic, obviously. Um, in verse 3, we don't need to get, um, again, here talking about not making dogmatic axioms. I don't think, nor does anyone else think, that Paul really believes he's like floating around in his spirit in the congregation at Corinth. Okay, he's saying it, it in the same kind of way that we say it though absent in the body i'm present in the spirit okay i'm there with you as it were and i've already judged the one who did such a thing when you are assembled in the name of the lord jesus this is so this is the divine service this is as, as the congregation and my spirit is present with the power of our lord jesus now that echoes back to what we read a minute ago, right? In chapter 4, verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in talk but in power. When you are assembled in the kingdom of the Lord or in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver, hand over this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What is the point of excommunication. It's recognizing that this soul, this human being, has already forsaken Christ. They're already in a state of not being saved. And excommunication is to tell them, corporately, as a church, this is where you are. This is how Christ sees you, this is how we see you. Obviously, there's this call to repent. But what is the point and purpose of that move? And as Paul says, handing him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, the purpose is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That is that he may come to his senses, repent and be saved. So the purpose of excommunication is ultimately to wake somebody up who's already died in the faith, to wake them up to the fact that they've died that they may come to their senses and live. You can see how decayed the church is, how decayed Christians are, how de- decayed our entire spirituality is in the West. Because again, um, if a, if a if a Christian were engaged in this, like let's say in our congregation, and I were to go to them and say, "You know, this is a sin. You should stop." Um, If they were to say, "Uh, yeah, I don't think so. I think God wants me to do this. It's fine. Given these circumstances, it's like, so, you know, sorry, pastor, but I'm still going to do what I want to do. Hey, well, if that's how you feel about it, I'm going to have to take this to the congregation. They'd be like, okay, I'm out of here where, where's the nearest church that I can join, right? Where I'm going to get away with this. Uh, so it just talks about the decay and the utter lack of integrity we have uh, in our midst. Uh, it's a sad thing. It's a thing to be mourned. Okay. So back to Corian. Uh Yes, sir. Question. Um, isn't something like this, uh, you know, the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved. Isn't this where, like, the Inquisition came from, with twisting something like this? I don't know. I'm not aware of that. It would be quite the twist. Uh, did, it's quite the it talks twist. Talk about destruction of the flesh to save. I don't them. know. I start to get, like, kind of pro-Inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> kind of start to see the witchcraft all around us. Kind of go, hmm... Maybe we ought to rethink those a little bit. <laughs> I joke, joking aside, I, I think uh yeah, this this kind of verse could obviously be abused. And uh people could go on witch hunts or inquisitions. But again, Paul is no in in no place in verse five is Paul saying, Hey, you go out and destroy his flesh. <laughs> you subject him to a hey, let's see what what do they do with the witches like um, if she burns at the stake, she's dead and it wasn't a witch. If she doesn't, she is a witch, and now we gotta go drown. So either way, she ends up dead. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that is not being taught here by Saint Paul in this verse, and that's clearly a satanic mockery of this verse. So it is handing him over, delivering him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now, the destruction of the flesh, it could well mean like bodily torments, but again, I think I think. A deeper assessment of this would be the flesh, as Paul uses it, is the sinful impulse that's taken over in this man. So sin, like for example in Romans, is its own punishment, and God gets over to sin, and more and more sin. And if one is to be awakened to the reality of the path that he's set down, it's like as that path gets worse and worse, he realizes, you know, think of the, think of the prodigal son. He's a son of the father. He's sinned grievously and departed from the household. As he goes, it feels great for a while. The money runs out. He starts to get destitute. He starts to get starving. He can't find a job. He's suddenly uh, in rags, ankle deep in pig crap, feeding them and wishing he could eat what they were eating. Okay. And that that's indicative of the destruction of the flesh. It's like you get to the point where satan says oh welcome back home my good and faithful servant let's get busy and the point is that like as that just gets more and more wretched for you and for your flesh and you just you come to your senses and you re- and you, you return back to your father's house i think that's a good enough template to understand so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord yeah please
1: I just want to just comment in general. I think uh, okay. sexual sin is one of the problems that men in general. Must mm-hmm. be, uh, you know, it, it kind of, uh, it's a progressive thing, too. This now, obviously, is downstream. The acted on Now, yeah. Let's say we just have an argument. Then you go to the Red Robin Burger and you see somebody attractive over there. Yeah. You look, you know, and oh, okay, I can hold that one off. On. And then I back, like, oh, let me go back the same time next week. You know, it, it's and the next thing you know, you're, you're engaged. Mm-hmm. So yep. if you could comment on that from a man's standpoint. Of, of, we normally silo up. We're not sharing with one another. Our temptation. Mm-hmm. We're not using confession enough. You know, to do and uh, what are some ways we can combat these these impulses and uh, yeah, lusting yeah. and, and, and where does fornication and adultery? Uh, Jesus mm-hmm. said, if you think of it in your mind, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's as if you're committed. Mm-hmm. Adultery. Well, what, what is
0: fornication in the context of, a lot of- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I think we could have a five hour session now on just sexuality. Uh, but maybe I can give you just some um, broad things to consider and some some helpful things here. So, um, the hang up with sexuality in the church isn't a hang up at all. You have to understand what it is. So, in the beginning with Adam and Eve, God says, be fruitful and multiply. So that, that procreative uh, desire that prior to the fall into sin is good and properly ordered and right is the essential way in which, uh, it is the highest office of man because God says, God gives dominion, lordship. I mean, already in Genesis, he's Lord of lords and he creates human human the human race to be, Lords under his lordship. Is it God who creates? Absolutely. Is it God who brings souls into being, who knits us together in our mother's rooms Absolutely. But He does that in a particular way, through us. So the creative power of that, of bringing life into the world, is at the essence of what it is to be a, a human being, because it's at the essence of what it is to be a co-lord, and a co-creator. With God. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's why it's such a great power and where there's such a great impulse and why it's so important and why it's so essential to us. I mean, particularly as men, yes, but women as well. It's why it's so central. So the more we understand like what it was in the beginning and how beautiful it is and what a high honor it is, now we can see why it's so deeply corrupted, why it's so central, why it's so unavoidable. Um, why satan attacks it so vociferously why it's really satan's hang-up is with sex because he wants to pervert that highest most beautiful honor of being co-lords co-creators co-rulers with god and of course think back to think back to the garden it's so that it's so that as man and woman come together in the sexual union uh, and, and manifest that one flesh relationship that they have, progeny are brought forth. A household is created, the unit of creation. And even in Genesis, even in a world not beset with sin, the whole point is to be fruitful so that children have children, and the dominion of the Lord is spread throughout all the earth. So all the earth then becomes cultivated and cared for by man. All of the earth begins to sing the praises of God's order and God's glory. That's the vision. That's like that golden thread that runs through everything. So if you were Satan and you hated God's guts, what are you going to attack? That thing and that thing harder than anything else. Because you recognize that it's the glory and it's the power and it's the honor bestowed upon man. Okay so hopefully that gives us some context right now when that when that has become perverted in us say like on account of the fall the flesh has its own disordered impulses now and everything's imbalanced and out of proportion and um and and nothing is as it should be now human beings want to come along and go okay well you know the lust in your heart that's okay just don't act on it and Jesus comes and just you know with his, with his verbal shotgun and just puts that right to death <laughs> and says, no, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You've already broken the sixth commandment. So when we experience that within us, we should immediately confess it as sin. We should, and we should just immediately go to God and say, I understand this great and profound honor that you've bestowed upon me and look at how it's twisted and perverted within me forgive me, change me, cleanse me with the blood of Christ, etc. So you're agreeing with him then that his law is good, his way is right.
1: Pastor, what, I have a, yes, a sir. quick question. Um, yes, sir. Would, I be, would I be correct in thinking that getting back to um, excommunication, um, two reasons I'm thinking of. One is... By excommunicating somebody, you're actually giving that person, affording them the best chance to receive their sin and repent. Mm -hmm. um, As opposed to if you
0: don't take that action and you let them stay in the church, that's less likely to happen. And two, they're like a a cancerous infection that would
1: affect some other members or body of the Christ in that church. So, I mean,
0: is that would be two other things for? or re- valid reasons for excommunication. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good point. So this person is already uh, uh, severed themselves from Christ. So individually you're doing the best thing you can do for them. Cause otherwise, if you just bless them, they continue to be severed from Christ and the whole thing's just a charade and the church is yeah. telling them they're in when they're not, which is like the worst possible thing you could do for someone. Right. Mm-hmm. And then your second point is equally is important. And that is the corporate aspect of the church that sin has a kind of contagiousness to it, and if you allow um, one kind of sin to develop, it tends to spread. And uh, some of you know this directly, even if only anecdotally, that uh, divorce spread divorce is a addic- uh, is infectious. It's an infectious disease in the body. In our culture, it's I, I, the. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's like something like seven over seventy percent of divorces in Orange County are initiated by women. So this is particularly where I've seen it is one, a woman will get divorced and then say how wonderful her life is now that she's divorced. And lo and behold, her her female friends now are thinking about getting divorced. So it's contagious. So you had to have a, an immune response from the body of Christ that says that's a contagion. We need to get our white blood cells out And get rid of that infection before it spreads is exactly right. So the the church, um, since the 20th century, has been suffering from HIV. The church is HIV infected. That is our our number one problem. The church has always had sins, as you can see from the first century on. The church has always had sins and stuff crop up and diseases and heresies and all this stuff. And you're not going to get rid of that. But whether you're healthy or not is whether you have a functioning immune system, whether you have some something within the body saying, that's a disease, we need to stop it before it takes over. And the church is immunocompromised and has been from the 20th century to the present. That's really our number one issue. It's not the presence of these things. What else is new? Sinners are going to sin. We're all sinners redeemed by Christ. It's the lack of immune system. So anyway, thank you for that. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to that. So, just briefly back to sexuality because I want to say a few other things, and we're going to have opportunity to talk about these things as the chapters roll on. Because we're going to get into some uh, things that are going to sound, you know, challenging, especially when we get into verse seven and Paul's argument about why Christians shouldn't visit prostitutes and this kind of thing. Um, okay, we see then how Satan wants to corrupt sexuality, because it's such a high gift and honor that God has bestowed upon us. So we see how he tries to do that. Now, I talked about how Jesus says, even lust in your heart is already a sin. So we acknowledge that and confess that. And the point is so that you stop it there. That's the point. Um, Luther, in a similar vein, says you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. There goes the lust. Get away from me, lust. I confess this. Father, have mercy on me. Uh, letting it build a nest in your hair is like King David, who looks, sees Bathsheba bathing, feels the lust. Does he repent and get the bird away? Nope. let the bird sit down and start building a nest. Then there's adultery. Then there's murder. Then there's the death of the offspring. Then there's endless problems in the nation, Right? So the whole point is to not let that uh, bird build its nest. And there are degrees here, okay? Um, so let me just state outright that any sin that you think is merely venial is no big deal. Immediately becomes mortal. Immediately becomes a big deal. Okay. And as long as you think all sins are mortal, all sins are a big deal, then paradoxically they all become venial, because you're of confess- oh, no big deal, because you're confessing them to Christ and he's forgiving them, okay? That sort of axiom needs to be stated. There is nonetheless a difference that we should consider as men between thought, word, and deed. Because it's a far more devastating thing to you as a human being, to the woman you might be with, to your wife, to your family, to the congregation, to everything, the difference between thinking something and doing something. I hope that's obvious and manifest. If you're a married man thinking about committing adultery, it's certainly evil, but it's not anywhere as evil or destructive as engaging. Makes sense? All right. So after the sort of natural like and i mean natural in the unnatural sense in the it's natural for the fallen man <laughs> okay it's unnatural according to the way god's created us but this sort of lust we have you want to stop that insofar as you can before pornography pornography is the next step and pornography is I mean, wickedly devastating there's all kinds of science even that backs this up changes your brain chemistry It's just it's wickedly devastating um the destructive impact of something like pornography really affects you. Now, it can bleed out in your marriage. It can bleed out into these other things, but primarily it, uh, infects your internal life. Acting on the sexual impulse, joining yourself in, to another in such a way that a one-flesh union is affected is a totally different category. It just is. Um, in the way that a, a thought is different than a word and a word is different than a deed. I don't want my kids to say, you know, dad, I feel like killing you. Okay. That's bad enough. But I'd much prefer that (laughs) to my son firing up the chainsaw. Right. So you can see how uh, a thought is one thing and it's, it's wicked and should be confessed and be forgiven. A word is even still more wicked because it's a manifestation and a deed brings it to a kind of fullness and devastation that really there's just there's already consequences in the act itself. All right. That's worth having in mind. That's worth keeping in mind. Um, what's going on? Uh, I mean, it's not to say that the ancient people didn't have pornography. They did. Just they didn't have instant access to it on their phones and their computers and every other way you can get it. Or just even walking down the shopping aisle and you go down the magazine aisle and you see women scantily clad or you go to our beaches, you're minding your own business. And uh, there's the women there um, with their thongs and their boob plates, as my daughter calls them, uh, just with basically everything out. Okay, so that's the you know, that's the world in which we live. You want to confess lust as sin and fight against it. Stop it from progressing down the chain. So they do have pornography, but it's not as accessible. It's not as uh, overtaking as it has become in our day with technology and the easy access and just everything in our culture being so sexualized. You know, I don't want to take anything away from that. And it's something we should all think about, focus on, etc., um, care for one another, hold one another accountable. Then what you're going to see Paul do, though, in chapter 5, and especially as we go on to the latter half of chapter 6 and chapter 7, is he's really going to have in view, though, the devastation that's caused by a one-flesh union, by, by actually going out in from your marriage or prior to your marriage or outside of your marriage. So within a marriage, we're going to see the technical language here, I'll bring that up. Within a marriage, or um, let's say that uh, a marriage is being violated, that usually falls under adultery. Where a marriage isn't being violated, but there's still illicit sexual activity, that's fornication. We're going to see a distinction in that language, even in the biblical text. And yeah, I mean, it's a distinction by degree. But even then fornication is going to be a lighter sin than adultery. Not by much, but adultery is necessarily destroying a marriage. Fornication is an aping of marriage and a one flesh union has all kinds of dire consequences to it, but it lacks the dire consequence of destroying a marriage. You see? So there is a biblical distinction there between fornication and adultery. And I think that, and maybe that's a, an opportunity too to have a clarion call to use a little bit more precision in language to return to the biblical language. It's not same-sex attraction. It's homosexuality. Um, it's not, uh, or or it's um, sodomy would be reference to the act. Um, it's not. It's not extramarital sex. It's fornication. I think adultery we generally still have down, although it's usually hidden under euphemisms of happiness. Well, I wasn't happy. Oh, okay. Then it's all good. No, it's adultery. So all of these are different forms of violation of the uh, Sixth Commandment. You shall not commit adultery. We'll have opportunity to kind of look through these as we go along. But it it is just um, in summary then, you can see the import because it's connected to this creative impulse of God that he's written within us. You can also see why even um, lust of the heart is damnable sin and should be confessed and be forgiven by Christ. But our goal in our battle with the flesh and crucifying the flesh is not to let it manifest in these other more dangerous and devastating forms. In the same way, if you hate somebody, you better cut that off and confess that and get rid of that before it manifests to you stalking them poisoning their pets and ultimately murdering them okay. so you can see that that is true with all analogies it's one thing to it's one thing to look at your neighbor's house and go gosh I wish I had that that's sinful bill doesn't deserve that nice little barbecue okay that's sinful you ought to confess that but then if you let that grow then it's how can I get bill's barbecue how can I get his house how can I at least get him out of that house How can I scheme to get myself a house like that? And that's where it starts manifesting in greater and more destructive sins. Does that make sense? All right. All right. Hopefully, hopefully I've said enough then. So then, um, yeah, back to, back to Corinth. Look at verse six. The underlying condition is their arrogance. They're being puffed up. So your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, the leaven here is obviously arrogance, boasting, being puffed up, but it's manifesting itself in this corruption of the, of you know, it's manifesting itself in this case and gross sexual immorality being tolerated within the church. Okay, cleanse out or purge out the old leaven. Oh, and just so we're all clear, I mean, I'm a little like... um culinarily defective, but leaven is what makes the bread go up. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Rice. Right, exactly right. And and the unleavened bread, that's what makes it go down. Yeah. Okay. I want to make sure I got that right. All right. So a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So this is kind of a new creation that God has made you. And the use here are plural. So talking about it a, as, a, as a congregation, as a church. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Kind of act as you are. You are a new lump. You are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, where is this coming from? The unleavened bread that they ate going out of Egypt. And the Passover lamb that had to be slain, the blood put on the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over. That's the Passover. So then it is on the, the night in which Christ and his disciples are celebrating the Passover that he takes that unleavened bread and says, this is my body given for you. And we eat the flesh of the Passover lamb. Um, a Passover lamb has two jobs, to be slain and to be eaten. That's what makes you a Passover lamb. And so when Christ is our Passover lamb, he's slain. And as he says, this is my body given for you. It's the body of the lamb that we eat. It's the Passover lamb. Okay. And then, of course, not explicit here, it will be elsewhere in Corinthians as we go along to chapter 10 and 11. But uh, in view here is on that Passover night, he takes the um, cup of blessing, which is a cup of wine, and he says, Take, drink, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. So just, and I'll remind you of this as we get to chapter 10, 11, but if you ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, what's the New Testament? And then you go read all the red letters in the Bible. Only one place will Jesus tell you what the New Testament is. The New Testament is this cup of his blood shed for you to cleanse you of your sins. So all the passages in the scripture that talk about being cleansed by the blood of Christ We can't read those abstractly or metaphorically as if this is somehow happening like invisibly. Okay? I mean, there's a certain kind of like heavenly legal logic to it. But very concretely, when we drink the blood of Christ, we are cleansed by the blood of Christ. It's a concrete reality that the scriptures have first and foremost in mind. That's why Christ says the New Testament isn't, oh, it's me up on the cross and it's this sort of heavenly legal transaction. He says, no, it is this cup of my blood given and shed for you. That's the heart. That's the New Testament, according to Christ.
1: That's a good question about that. Yes, sir. I think you just said something about a cup of blessing. I mean, was that cup there for another purpose as um, part of some order ritual? Did he change it, or was it just there was a cup they accepted
0: there? Well, there was all... Okay, so the what is not disputed is that there's wine at the Passover meal. Okay. What is disputed is the number of cups they had, and the cup of blessing, according to some theories, is the third cup. Some people think it's the third cup of four. It doesn't really matter, (laughs) is the bottom line. He takes a cup, and not just a cup, but his cup. That's the key. And he takes his cup, blesses it, and gives them, gives it to them. Now, elsewhere that night in the garden, he prays to the Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. And if we're Old Testament literate, it's the cup of wrath that the prophets have said, God is going to make the nations drink. So the idea that you're drunk, you lose your mind, you lose your senses, you're naked, you're embarrassed, you're you're a fool, you're lying uh, in in your own vomit. Um, That's the picture of God's wrath poured out, the kind of delusion, drunkenness, stupor, defilement um, that occurs. That's the cup that Jesus takes. It's the cup that belongs to us on account of our sins. So he's taking that cup away from us, and he's going to drink it. And in and in place, he's going to get his cup. That's why it's so important that he takes his cup and gives it to them and says, drink of it, all of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's, an, there's a swap of cups going on there on that Monday Thursday night, on that night which he's betrayed. Okay. That's, yes, sir. Another question. I mean, it talks about... Uh, you know cleansing out the old leaven uh, mm-hmm. wasn't there like a major ritual cleansing that went happened in a household prior to passover Yeah, you got to get rid of all the leaven prior to the Passover. So there's no leaven in your house. This is whole idea, right? So thanks for bringing that up, because that's kind of the impulse here is get rid of all the leaven, clean your house, because it's the Passover we're celebrating. The Passover for New Testament Christians is the Passover of our Lord, the Lord's Supper. So cleanse out the house so that we can have the Lord's Supper in sincerity and truth. And he's going to use that language here in just a minute. Um It's language, by the way, that works itself into the proper preface of many of our liturgies today. So we're reminded of this section of Scripture. Yeah, so cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And you remember all the Passover lambs, when they're sacrificed, they're then eaten. And so this clear allusion to the Lord's Supper Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast is better than festival. Let us celebrate the feast, although festival is just fine. What's he talking about? Let us celebrate the feast. The Lord's Lord's Supper. Yeah, that's all there is. There's the Lord's Supper. They're not doing the Passover anymore. So it is the Lord's Supper. When he says, let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, the Lord's Supper, not with the old leaven, that is, not with these manifest impenitent sins, the leaven of malice, kakias, which is, as you might guess, badness or depravity. Not like malice, because malice in the English sounds like hatred or something, which just doesn't fit the context. Um, badness or depravity. I mean, think about it in the context, um, not with the old leaven, the leaven of depravity and evil. That Doesn't that make so much more sense? But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the sincerity there is repentance. That's really what it is. That's why I'm, he's going to say in, in verse 11, before you go to the Lord's table, let a man examine himself so that you commune there with sincerity. And that just means an open heart before God, a willingness to plead guilty of the sins you've committed and whatever else you're guilty of that you don't even know about. That's what it means to approach him in sincerity. And the truth is simply to confess that what you're receiving is exactly what he says you're receiving. Sincerity and truth. Okay, in verse 9, we've, we get an indication that Paul has written a previous letter. It may, in fact, be the case that he's written several previous letters. We don't know. Of course, the joke is that 1 Corinthians then is really 2 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians is really 3 Corinthians. In any case, we have in verse 9 an indication that he's written a letter previous to 1 Corinthians. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate, the language there is mixed together, with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. What's he saying? They had mistaken him as to say, you can't, you can't have any business or any dealings with sexually immoral people. And they're going, well, how are we going to do anything in this world then? Because the whole world's filled with this kind of sexual immorality. And so he's saying, look, I'm not talking about the people of the world. He's going to go on to say, I'm talking about those who are named brothers, They're named brothers, and yet they're really not because they've given themselves over in impenitence to uh, sexual vices, to sexual immorality. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, um, maybe more literalistic would be the coveter. So here we're not talking about Christians that struggle with sins of weakness and, you know, sins of sexual desire per se, or any more than we're dealing with Christians that struggle from time to time with covetousness and repent of it. We're talking about where this manifests itself in such a way that this is a lifestyle. This is a public sin that this person is engaged in. So someone who is a covetous, um, it's right in kin with what comes next, swindlers or extortioners. I mean, I kind of think to make it really obvious, it would be I mean, pretend you had like Bertie Madoff in your congregation or some of the, or some of the great extortioners that exist in the stock market today and exist in the business world today. You're going to say, Oh yeah, you're a good Christian because you're rich. We need your money. No, you're going to say you're excommunicated because you are a coveter and a swindler, an extortioner, greedy. So this manifests itself in a lifestyle where when somebody looks at you, you're the guy who's robbing all that money. You're the guy who hangs out in the alley and robs people every Thursday night. Uh, you're the guy who's sleeping with his stepmom you're the that's the kind of thing where it's like if you're identified as that, how can you be identified with Christ? okay so that's that's the what he's painting here so not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world like where am I supposed to put my ba- my money then what bank <laughs> isn't filled with? Coveters and extortioners with the greedy and swindlers. Paul's saying, no, no, I'm not saying that. Verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of these very things. Sexual immorality, read slash coveting, or is an idolater. Now he adds in two more, reviler and drunkard. And then he adds in once more swindler. So we go from four to six. Um, Reviler is one who rails or reviles. I don't know who that would be. Um, Maybe some of our talk show hosts, um, some of our media personalities, um, other people who are obviously just uh, contentious or haters, um, this kind of thing. Of course, we talked about how in the first century, there were public debaters, and this was part of their entertainment and sport. So if you're just somebody up there dissing everybody all the time and mocking everything all the time, um, that's incompatible with Christianity. That's a reviler. And then a drunkard, a, a Methusel, uh, someone who's constantly tipsy, would be a literal reading of that. Okay, so we might be losing the force for the trees in term of, terms of grammar, but I'll just finish out verse 11. Not even to eat with such a one. So once more, without interruption, verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, I think in context the eating is very clearly the Lord's Supper, but it may well even extend to a kind of uh, fellowship in your home. Uh, in that case, a kind of shunning. All for the point, to reiterate the end of verse 5, that such a person's spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's all done to win such a person. Then verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? So in other words, it's not my place, those outside of the church, it's not my place to like condemn them per se, or impose discipline upon them. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. It's your jurisdiction to judge those who are inside. It's not your jurisdiction to go impose discipline on those who are outside. I mean, it's a self-evident point, isn't it? Is Paul saying that they can't be critical of those outside? Absolutely not. Can be critical of those outside. You can render moral judgments about those outside. You just have no jurisdiction as a body of Christ to impose discipline on those outside. But to impose discipline on those inside, that is your jurisdiction. That is your duty. That is your judgment. Now this is helpful to keep in mind. Um, and we're, we're just out of time here, but and I'll bring this to mind next week as we go into six because the key, just as the key today between four and five is arrogance, the key between five and six is going to be judgment. And we can tie this in where previously Paul has told them, not to engage in kind of personal judgments. Well, here's my personal moral system and you've fallen afoul of that. Don't do that. It's also what Christ means when he says, judge not. But Paul sets before them then um, not to go beyond what is written. Let the scriptures make the judgments. We be faithful to the scriptures. Then it's God doing the judging in and through us. And here very clearly at the end of five, you have Paul telling the church, you have a duty to judge those within the church. And Paul's even going to extend that in chapter six to the question of lawsuits in general. Why on earth would you go seek justice outside of the church when those inside of the church are your brothers, are fully capable, and are going to judge on the basis of God's word, whereas those outside of the church, no such guarantee. Uh, furthermore, those inside of the church are going to end up in the great judgment, judging those who are outside of the church. Now this opens up a whole bunch of can of worms and a whole bunch of questions, and uh so let's let that be the cliffhanger <laughs> in the next week. All right, let's close up with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread.